Chapter 1 of The Beloved Vagabond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. Chapter 1. This is not a story about myself. Like a Canning's organ grinder, I have none to tell. It is the story of Parago, the Beloved Vagabond. Please pronounce his name French fashion. And, if I obtrude myself on your notice, it is because I was so much involved in the medley of farce and tragedy which made up some years of his life, that I don't know how to tell the story otherwise. To Parago I owe everything. He is at once my benefactor, my venerated master, my beloved friend, my creator. Clay in his hands, he moulded me according to his caprice, and inspired me with the breath of life. My existence is drenched with the colour of Parago. I had laid claim to no personality of my own, and any obiter dicta that may fall from my pen in the course of the ensuing narrative are but reflections of Parago's philosophy. Men have spoken evil of him. He snapped his fingers at calumny, but I winced, never having reached the calm altitudes of scorn wherein his soul has its habitation. I burned to defend him and I burn now, and that is why I propose to write his apologia, his justification. Why he singled me out for adoption from among the unwashed urchins of London I never could conjecture. Once I asked him. Because, said he, you are ugly, dirty, rickety, undersized, underfed, and wholly uninteresting. Also because your mother was the very worst washerwoman that ever breathed gin into a shirt-front. I did not resent these charges, direct and implied, against my mother. She did launder villainously, and she did drink gin, and of the nine uncared-for gutter-snipes she brought into the world, I think I was the most unkempt and neglected. I know that Sunday school books tell you to love your mother, but if the only maternal caresses you could remember were administered by means of a wet pair of wooden drawers or the edge of a hot flat-iron, he would find filial piety a virtue somewhat abstract. Verily, do earwigs care more for their progeny than did my mother? She sold me, body and soul, to Parago, for half a crown. It fell out thus. One morning, laden with his, technically speaking, clean linen, I knocked at the door of Parago's chambers. He called them chambers, for he was nothing if not grandiloquent but really they consisted in an attic in Tavistock Street, Covent Garden, above the curious club over which he presided. I knocked then at the door. A sonorous voice bade me enter. Parago lay in bed, smoking a huge pipe with a porcelain bowl and reading a book. The fact of one individual having a room all to himself impressed me so greatly with a sense of luxury, refinement and power that I neglected to observe its pitifulness and squalor. Nor of Parago's personal appearance was I critical. He had long black hair, and a long black beard, and long black fingernails. The last was so long and commanding that I thought unashamedly of my own bitten fingertips, and vowed that when I too became a great man, able to smoke a porcelain pipe of mornings in my own room, my nails should equal his in splendour. I brought the washing, sir, I announced. And please, sir, mother says I'm not to let you have it unless you settle up for the last three weeks. 
I had a trancing vision of swarthy, hairy legs as Parago leapt out of bed. He stood over me, man of all the luxuries that he was, in his nightshirt. Fancy having a shirt for the day and a shirt for the night. Do you mean that you will dispute possession of it with me, V at armies? Yes, sir, said I, confused. He laughed, clapped me on the shoulder, called me David, Jack the Giant Killer, and bade me deliver the washing book. I fumbled in the pocket of my torn jacket and handed him a greasy, dog's-eared mass of paper. As soon as his eyes fell on it, I realised my mistake and produced the washing book from the other pocket. I've given you the wrong one, sir, said I, reaching for the treasure I had surrendered. But he threw himself on his bed and dived his legs beneath the clothes. Wonderful, he cried. He is four foot nothing. He looks like a yard of pack thread. He would fight me for an ill-washed shirt and a pair of holes with bits of sock round them. And he reads Paradise Lost. He made a gesture of throwing the disreputable epic at my head, and I curved my arm in an attitude only too familiarly defensive. I found it in a bundle of washing, sir, I cried apologetically. At home, reading was the unforgivable sin. Had my mother discovered me poring over the half-intelligible but wholly fascinating story of Adam and Eve and the devil, she would have beaten me with the first implement to her hand. I had a moment's terror, lest the possession of a work of literature should be so horrible a crime that even Parago would chastise me. To my consternation, he thrust the tattered thing, it was an antiquated sixpenny edition, under my nose and commanded me to read. Of man's first disobedience. Go on. If you can read it intelligently, I'll pay your mother. If you can't, I'll write to her politely to say that I resent having my washing sent home by persons of no education. I began in great fear, but having, I suppose, an instinctive appreciation of letters, I mouthed the rolling lines not too brokenly. What's a heavenly muse? asked Parago as soon as I paused. I had not the faintest idea. Do you think it's a paradisical backyard where they keep the horse of the apocalypse? I caught a twinkle in the blue eyes which he bent fiercely upon me. If you please, sir, said I, I think it is the bird of paradise. Then we both laughed, and Parago, bidding me sit on the wreck of a cane-bottomed chair, gave me my first lesson in Greek mythology. He talked for nearly an hour, and I, ragged urchin of the London streets, my wits sharpened by hunger and ill-usage, sat spellbound on my comfortless perch, while he unfolded the tale of gods and goddesses, an unveiled Olympus before my enraptured vision. "'Boy,' said he suddenly, "'can you cook a herring?' I came down to earth with a bang. Stunned, I stared at him. I distinctly remember wondering where I was. "'Can you cook a herring?' he shouted. Uh, "'Yes, sir,' I cried, jumping to my feet. "'Then cook two, one for you and one for me. "'You'll find them somewhere about the room, uh, "'also tea and bread and butter and a gas stove, "'and when all is ready, let me know.' "'He settled himself comfortably in bed "'and went on reading his book. "'It was Hegel's philosophy of history. "'I tried to read it afterwards "'and found that it passed my understanding.' In a confused dream of gods and herrings, I set about my task. Heaven only knows how I managed to succeed. In my childish imagination, Jupiter was clothed in the hirsute majesty of Parago. And I was to breakfast with him. 
The herrings and a half-smoked pipe shared a plate on the top of the rickety chest of drawers. I had to blow the ash off the fish. A paper of tea and a loaf of bread I found in a higgledy-piggledy mixture of clothes, books and papers. My godlike friend had carelessly put his hairbrush into the butter. The condition of the sole cooking utensil warred even against my sense of the fitness of gridirons, and I cleansed it with his towel. Since then, I have breakfasted in the houses of the wealthy. I have lunched at the Café Anglais. I have dined at the Savoy. But never have I eaten, never till they give me a welcoming banquet in the Elysian fields, shall I eat so ambrosial a meal as that first herring with Parago. When I had set it on the little deal table, he deigned to remember my existence, and, closing his book, rose, donned a pair of trousers, and sat down. He gave me my first lesson in table manners. Boy, said he, if you wish to adorn the high social spheres for which you are destined, you must learn the value of convention. Bread and cheese straws and asparagus and the leaves of an artichoke are eaten with the fingers, but not herrings or sweetbreads or ice cream. As regards the last, you are doubtless in the habit of extracting it from a disappointing wine-glass with your tongue. This, in notre monde, is regarded as bad form. notre monde is French, a language which you will have to learn. Its great use is in talking to English people when you don't want to understand what you say. They pretend they do, for they are too vain to admit their ignorance. The wise man profits by the vanity of his fellow creatures. If I were not wise after this manner, should I be here eating herrings in Tavistock Street, Covent Garden? I was too full of food and adoration to reply. I gazed at him, dumbly worshipping, and choked over a cup of tea. When I recovered, he questioned me as to my home life, my schooling, my ideas of a future state, and my notions of a career in this world. The height of my then ambition was to keep a fried fish shop. The restaurateur with whom my good mother dealt used to sit for hours in his doorway in Drury Lane reading a book, and I considered this a most dignified and scholarly avocation. When I made this naive avowal to Parago, he looked at me with a queer pity in his eyes and muttered an exclamation in a foreign tongue. I have never met anyone so full of strange oaths as Parago. As to my religious convictions, they were chiefly limited to a terrifying conception of the hell to which my mother daily consigned me. In devils, fires, chains and pitchforks, its establishment was as complete as any inferno depicted by Orcagna. I used to wake up of nights in a cold sweat through dreaming of it. My son, said Parago, the most eminent divines of the Church of England will tell you that a material hell with consuming flames is an exploded fallacy. I can tell you the same without being an eminent divine. The wicked carry their own hell about with them during life, here, somewhere between the gullet and the pit of the stomach, and it prevents their enjoyment of herrings, which smell vilely of gas. There ain't no devils, then? I asked. Sacre mille diables! No! he shouted. Haven't I been exhausting myself with telling you so? I said little. But to this day I remember the thrilling sense of deliverance from a horror which had gone far to crush the little childish joy allowed me by circumstance. There was no fiery hell, no red-hot pincers, no eternal frizzling and sizzling of the flesh, like unto that of the fish in Mr. Samuel's fish shop. Parago had transformed me by a word into a happy young pagan. 
My eyes swam as I swallowed my last bit of bread and butter. What is your name? asked Padigo. Augustus, sir. Augustus what? Smith, I murmured, same as mother's. I was forgetting, said he. Now, if there is one name I dislike more than Smith, it is Augustus. I've been thinking of a very nice name for you. It is Astico. It expresses you better than Augustus Smith. It is a very good name, sir, said I politely. I learned soon after that it is a French word meaning the little grey worms which fishermen call gentles, and that it was not such a complimentary appellation as I had imagined. But Astico I became, and Astico I remained for many a year. Watch up the things, my little Astico, said he, and afterwards we will discuss future arrangements. According to his directions, I took the tray down to a kind of scullery on the floor below. The wet plates and cups I dried on a greasy rag which I found lying on the sink, and this seemed to me a refinement of luxurious living. For at home, when we did wash plates, we merely held them under the chap till the remains of food ran off. We never thought of drying them. When I returned to the bedroom, Parago was dressed for the day. His long, lean wrists and hands protruded far through the sleeves of an old brown jacket. He wore a grey flannel shirt and an old bit of black ribbon done up in a bow by way of a tie. His slouch hat, once black, was now green with age, and his boots were innocent of blacking. But my eyes were dazzled by a heavy gold watch-chain across his waistcoat, and I thought him the most glorious of betailed beings. "'My little Astico,' said he, "'would you like to forsake your gentle mother's wash-tub "'and your dreams of a fried fish-shop and enter my service?' I, the heir of all the ages, am driven by destiny to running the Lotus Club downstairs. We call it Lotus because we eat tripe to banish memory. The members meet together in order to eat tripe, drink beer, and hear me talk. You can eat tripe and hear me talk too, and that would improve both your mind and your body. While Cherubino, the waiter, teaches you how to be a scullion, I would instruct you in philosophy. The sofa in the club will make an excellent bed for you, and your wages will be eighteen pence a week. He thrust his hands in his trouser pockets, and, rattling his money, looked at me with an inquiring air. I returned his gaze for a while, lost in a delirious wonder. I tried to speak. Something stuck in my throat. I broke into a blubber, and dried my eyes with my knuckles. It was an intoxicated little Astico that trotted by his side to my mother's residence, there, over gin and water, the bargain was struck. My mother pocketed half a crown, and with shaky, unaccustomed fingers signed her name across a penny stamp at the foot of a document which Parago had drawn up. I believe each of them was convinced that they had executed a legal deed. My mother, after inspecting me critically for a moment, wiped my nose with a piece of sacking that served as her apron, and handed me the, over to Parago, who marched away with his purchase as proud as if I had been a piece of second-hand furniture picked up cheap. I may as well remark here that Parago was not his real name. Neither was Josiah Henkendike, by which he was then known to me. He had a harmless mania for names, and I have known him use half a dozen. But that of Parago, which he assumed later as his final alias, is the one with which he is most associated in my mind, and to avoid confusion I must call him that from the start. Indeed, looking backward down the years, I wonder how he could ever have been anything else than Parago. 
that Phoebus Apollo could once have borne the name of John Jones is unimaginable. Boy, said he, as we retraced our steps to Tavistock Street, you are my thing, my chattel, my fabulous. No slave of old belonged more completely to a free-born citizen. You will address me as Master. Yes, sir, said I. Master, he shouted. Master, or maitre, or maestro, or magister, according to the language you are speaking. Now, do you understand? Uh, yes, master, said I. He nodded approval. At the corner of a by-street, he stopped short and held me at arm's length. You are a horrible object, my little Astico, said he. I must clothe you in a manner befitting the Lotus Club. He ran me into a slop-dealer's and fitted me out in sundry garments, in which, although they were several sizes too large for me, I felt myself clad like Solomon in all his glory. Then we went home. On the way up to his room, he paused at the scullery. A dishevelled woman was tidying up. Ah, Mrs. Housekeeper, said he, allow me to present you our new scullion pupil. Kindly instruct him in his duties, feed him and wash his head. Also, please remember that he answers to the name of Astigo. He swung on his heel and went downstairs, humming a tune. I remained with Mrs. Housekeeper, who carried out his instructions zealously. I can feel the soreness of my scalp to this day. Thus it fell out that I quitted the maternal roof and entered the service of Parago. I never saw my mother again, as she died soon afterwards, and as my brood of brothers and sisters vanished down the diverse gutters of London, I find myself with Parago for all my family, and now that I have arrived at an age when a man can look back dispassionately on his past, it is my pride that I can lay my hand on my heart and avow him to be the best family that boy ever had. End of chapter 1